0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello, and
2: welcome to Vet Voice, the pet pod. This is the podcast that's all about pets. I'm Zara Boland. I'm a veterinarian, a consultant and all-around animal lover. In each episode of the Pet Pod, I'll be joined by some of my veterinary friends and colleagues from across the pet healthcare industry to offer you handy tips and expert advice to help keep your beloved family pet healthy and above all happy. So today we're discussing the really important topic of socializing our young companion pets and I'm delighted to welcome my guest today who's Dr. Kirsty Zexel all the way from Sydney in Australia and she's the world's only triple board certified animal behaviorist which means that she's recognized specialist in veterinary animal behavior across Australia, Europe and America. Kirsty actually pioneered the concept of both puppy preschool and kitten kindy classes and she designed them to help owners and their pets really to understand each other better so that they can learn to live in harmony. So Kirsty, welcome to the pet pod. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of everything, there's a really good reason why you decided to specialise in behavioural medicine, isn't there?
3: Yes, there is. It's a long and convoluted story, but um, in a nutshell, um, I studied uh, veterinary science at Sydney University in Australia, hence my beautiful Australian accent. And then like all Aussie vets, we do the expedition to the UK. So I said to my mother, I'll be back in six months. I'm just going to have a little bit of a look around. And five years later, I was still living in the UK. UK and then it got to a point of "Mm, will I stay or will I come home and I'm sorry the weather in the UK just didn't agree with Australia (laughs) born and bred with blue skies and sunshine so back I came. But when I walked out of university, I said, that's it. I've done five years study. I'm never going to darken the doorstep of another university again. That's it. I've done my dash with studying. But while I was in the UK, I had the privilege of working with a couple of uh, vets there and non-vets and in veterinary hospitals, Um, Bruce Fogel, who had a veterinary hospital in London and also uh, um, Roger Mugford, that's it. Um, I had the privilege of watching Roger Mugford do a few consultations. And I thought, wow, isn't that really interesting? He talks about behavior in animals, like we weren't taught anything about that. And while I was working in the UK, I also discovered a very sad fact, which still almost holds true now, 20 odd years later, that um, more animals are euthanized or surrendered because of behaviour problems than any other cause, all other causes in fact put together. So neoplasia, infectious diseases, put them all together, more animals are surrendered or euthanized because of their behaviour problems. And I just couldn't believe I'd spent five years at university and I couldn't help most of my patients and that seemed to me a travesty that that was what was happening. So I looked into how I could learn more about animal behaviour. The only people who were working in the field at that point that I could get a hold of were all human psychologists. So I came back to Australia, I did a degree in human psychology, yep, back to a university (laughs) and then I started looking at, um, you know, puppy training and kitten kindy and so I pioneered puppy classes and kitten indie classes in Australia and of course that meant doing a thesis on that to actually prove that it did help and then it's gone on and on from there. So I now have what I call an alphabet soup behind my name Um, but it has (laughs) taken me into into an area I think that is still not well recognised even though there's lots more uh, specialists in behavioural medicine now all over the world and I think that's a really really good thing and the trend now is not to call us animal behaviourists. Most of us call ourselves veterinary uh, behaviourists or in fact, veterinary psychiatrists. And that's really the trend that we are really the psychiatrists of the animal world, looking at animals that have mental health issues, because as you would appreciate, Zara, many, many years ago, people didn't even think humans had mental health issues and it wasn't very well recognised and depression. Well, why don't you just get out of bed and what's wrong with you? And it was laughed at, whereas now it's taken very seriously. We understand that people do have mental health issues, that they can suffer from anxiety and depression and I guess in these COVID times, we're seeing more and more of that. And now it's well recognised that animals have the same issues. So it's a long story, but um, yeah, I just couldn't believe I was working in a field where I was trying to help animals and I couldn't help the vast majority of them, which just struck me as just travesty.
2: Yeah, it's, it's horrendous when you, when you put it like that. It's quite shocking. And, and I really like that term. I haven't heard that one, veterinary psychiatrist. It makes a lot of sense. You did mention puppy preschool and kitten kindy, and that's what I'd like to, to get into. Talk us through the concept behind it. So from my memory, it was really an opportunity to help pets, puppies and kittens become more socialized and therefore integrate better perhaps into our lives as well as maybe give us the understanding of of their behavior to help integrate us with them
3: I think it's an interesting concept because certainly um, when I was growing up in Sydney with school the theory was that we you know you didn't train dogs till they were six months of age and once you learned a little bit about behavior you you know it was quite obvious that these puppies were learning things well and truly before six months of age and we were just missing out on a fabulous opportunity and when I first started I thought, yeah, this socialization business is really, really important, and we probably need to be teaching puppies some manners at an early age. Hence puppy preschool, that's where the name came from. Once I started doing that, people said, well, if you're doing this for dogs, why don't you do it for cats? So hence Kitten Kindy was born. And and I think the original concept of making it a school, a teaching environment was really important. But um, what I have changed over the years is the focus that I don't think we're really teaching the puppies that much. They know how to sit, they know how to come, they know how to do all that. They just don't know the words we attach to them. But What we are teaching is the owners. And I don't think we should be teaching puppies or kittens um, obedience per se. I think it's about teaching good manners, how they can actually live in that household in harmony, stay with their owners so that we don't see them suddenly at uh, 12 months of age or two years of age being surrendered or euthanized. And if people understand the behavior of the animal and why the dog is doing that and why the cat's doing that, I think they're more likely to go, okay, it's not being naughty, it's not being disobedient. And we actually have to understand that what they're doing is maybe, maybe just what We bred dogs to do for thousands and thousands of years. I think the other concept that's really important is the socialisation concept. And one of the things where perhaps it's gone a bit adrift when I watch uh, some people doing puppy classes, it's all about play, but it's not about play. Uh, Socialisation, the definition is actually how to accept the close proximity of members of your own species and other species. It does not mean you have to be first best friends with every other dog you meet or every cat you meet or every person you meet you just have to accept them or tolerate their presence. And I think the concept of wanting all these animals to play is really not valid because play is complex. The way animals play is very different from humans. It's very beautiful to watch. It's really, really nice to see. But in fact um, if you don't watch animals play and know when it's not becoming appropriate play that can lead to a lot of lot of problems and you know it's like watching kids play there's a point where you watch them and you think yeah this is good and then you think no no I have to step in otherwise somebody's going to be in tears and that certainly happens what we see in puppy classes and we don't see it so much in kitten classes because we finish the class before the kittens actually start to do that play fighting but yeah play is important but it's not socialization and And I don't think obedience or training is important. I think teaching good manners is really, really important. And the manners have to be what's acceptable because, you know, how your dog belongs in your household and behaves, I may not want to live with a dog that has those manners, but you do. And you may not want to live with my dog with her manners, um, but I do. So I think there's that very individual acceptance of what the animal uh, can and can't do, knowing it's uh, normal or natural behaviour,
2: as well as what our expectations are. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. But to come back to socialization, because I think there's a really key area there as well that, that I'd like to talk about. I remember learning um, the key phases for socialization and they're quite early and And correct me if I'm wrong, but from puppies, I think it was, I think there was two phases for socialization, actually. There was a very early one from three to six weeks of there, right, another one from eight to 12 weeks and kittens then are different. So remind us about these key socialization periods and why they're so important. The
3: socialization period of dogs is thought to be between three 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 weeks and and three months. So, three to 12 weeks of age, absolutely correct. In that early phase, it's all about learning how to interact with other dogs, learning how to interact with their littermates, learning from their mother, um, what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. You know, if you go and bite your mum, she's probably not going to be happy with that, but she doesn't actually scruff you and shake you around, which is one of the odd things that I find people want to do to puppies when dogs don't do that to each other so you know it's an odd thing and then after that is the phase where they really start to learn from humans and that's why we often think it's a good idea that in that later phase probably eight weeks of age um, is a good time to go to your new home because that's when you as a puppy you're most I guess able to learn to fit in with with the environment that the humans expect you to live in. You know, in harmony, which is what it's all about. So, and we know that if puppies haven't had that exposure to other dogs or to humans and only lived in a kennel by 14 weeks of age, sometimes they just it's much much harder to socialize them so one of the reasons we want to run puppy classes is we want to run them when they're eight weeks of age or older so that they have had their first vaccination or at least their first health check and they're they're fine to to mix with other puppies and with other people but we don't want puppies that are old and one of the other things I've noticed over time is people including oh small size puppies and oh he's 18 weeks of age and he's only a puppy we'll know he's puppy size but he's actually not a Puppy anymore. And I always liken that to sort of if you have a seven year old kid and a 15 year old kid, do you want them in the same footy team? Probably not. So you have to keep them in that same age group of where they're learning to play at the same time. So puppy classes, ideally, we have puppies between don't say nine and and 12 weeks of age when they start um, so that they're not too old. They graduate together at the same time. Kittens, their socialization period is very different. Uh, It finishes much earlier. The kitten socialization period is between about three weeks to about seven weeks of age, maybe nine weeks of age. So most people are are not going to get their kitten until after this socialization period. So this is why it's so important that breeders actually do the socialization. They pick up the kittens, they carry them around, they introduce them to other kittens and, and to people and as well so that they know what they're getting into. And kitten classes, I like kittens to be less than uh, 12 weeks of age uh, because by 14 weeks of age, they're starting to play fights. So, and if you have kittens of an older age, uh, then one of the things I recommend is why don't the owners just come? We, we can do that education of the owners, explain what cats do that they like Vertical surfaces, and that's why your cat's always going to be on top of the counter, on top of the fridge, on top of the shelf, and doing all the things that you don't want it to do. But that's where the cat likes to be up high and seeing what's going on. So, even explaining some of those things to owners uh, can make that life with that new kitten or older cat much more harmonious for
2: everybody. Mm. Now, that's a good idea, actually. And in fact, it harks back to what we were saying earlier that the classes are good manner schools, if you like. I quite like that concept or that phrase for puppies, and of course, kittens if they're young enough but equally it's for us to understand their behaviors better and help them integrate into our lives so yeah it makes a lot of sense. So reverting back to the concept of playing and when it tips over into perhaps not being so much fun for someone how should we react if our puppy or kitten isn't displaying what we consider to be good manners and and we want them to change that behavior? I remember from my own um, training, it was all about positive reinforcement, not punishing and, and well, not necessarily ignoring either. <laughs> well, nothing's much strange in that department. It absolutely always positive reinforcement.
3: Remember the puppy or kitten, if they're doing something that you don't want, maybe you haven't taught them what you do want. And... You know, it doesn't help for them to get into trouble or for you and I to get into trouble if we don't know what the right thing is. So it's always better, I think, to reinforce or reward the behaviour you want. I don't think we should be ignoring those behaviours. That's what uh, people often say, just ignore them, it'll go away. Well, mostly when animals do a behaviour like that, they're actually seeking information. And if we do not give them the information of what you would like them to do now, then that's actually quite detrimental um, because living in a void, it doesn't help us go forward. So, Nothing's changed about no punishment. Um, Bad things happen to animals anyway. You know, the kitten's going to fall down a flight of stairs if he goes down there. You know, the dog might poke his nose into a rose bush and get pricked. But we don't have to inflict that punishment. That's really not our job if we're going to look after them and help them be the best pet they can be. Uh, It's all about rewarding the behaviour we want, redirecting them if they're doing something we don't want. But certainly, uh, you know, when people say they're attention seeking, I don't think they are. I think they're looking for information we're just not very good at giving them the information that they need. So um, you're on the right tram. We haven't changed from the positive side of things, but I think more it's not the ignoring it anymore. um, And certainly no role for punishment whatsoever. Now, that doesn't mean you can't distract them. If you've got a puppy that's doing something you don't want, you can say, hey, come over here. Um, let me show you something else. This is much better to be doing this. So you distract them and tell them what you want them to do. Now, I don't want you to chew up that rug, but wow, this is a really good toy. You can have a chew at that instead. So um, we're teaching them what we actually want them to do rather than always paying attention to them when, when they're doing what we don't want. And I think that that's, that's a real problem. So I think as long as we stick to the same tram, this is good. Let's do something else, give you the information you need. I think those animals are going to grow up as best they can, provided that they're neurotypical or normal.
2: Well, I think uh, I have my own good example of that, Kirsty. Um, and that's, I'm going to talk about my own dog, Rumba, who you've met. Uh, she was a puppy at that stage, of course, but she's she's a lot bigger now, but still has the habit. Um, when she was a puppy, uh, she used to do a lot of mouthing, as all puppies do. And I didn't particularly want her chewing holes in my arms or, or ripping my shoes apart. So I used to take a, the nearest soft toy and and replace my, my arm or the shoe with that um, as a distraction technique. And, and it's got to the point now where it's actually getting quite embarrassing because um anytime anybody comes to the door or we have guests or visitors or even someone checking the gas meter um she'll dive to the toy box pick up any toy that comes to hand and literally come running to the front door to greet that person with the the soft toy hanging out of her mouth so it's not the best guard dog look but um but it's certainly an effective distraction technique (laughs) that survived well into adulthood (laughs) Oh, I think her size
3: would be the guard dog. Look, she doesn't have to do anything else but just be there. But, yeah, look, I think that's really important because she needed to know what to do. And if you had shouted at her, she wouldn't be any the wiser. And now she's going, oh, I know. If I get really excited, I need to put something in my mouth. Well, let me go find something I can put in my mouth. That's a perfectly reasonable thing, you know. You and I, sometimes we open the fridge door and look in there and put something in our mouths.
2: (laughs) Indeed we do, all too often in the last few months during COVID, in fact. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) so back to puppies and kittens and and training them or teaching them good manners. So when it comes to family and you've got um, children in the house, particularly young children, I know it's really important to have everybody... I guess, singing from the same hymn sheet when it comes to, to giving directions and, and training those good manners for our puppies and kittens, but I suppose particularly for our puppies. So do you have any advice for, for how to go about that? Um, and also, let's touch on it while we're talking about children, you know, not leaving children unsupervised or alone with their pets.
3: Kids are very good at modelling um, and watching what their parents do. And if they see their parents doing a behaviour, um, and this is why I really don't like things like punishment, because if the parents smack the dog, then, of course, then they might smack the dog. And that is not going to augur well if the child does that. So I think um, if you can model your behaviour in the way that you'd like to behave, kids certainly need supervision. Generally, as a rule of thumb, most veterinary behaviourists and paediatricians certainly in Australia would recommend that no child under eight is ever left unsupervised with any dog and it doesn't matter how good the child is how good the dog is and supervision means that you have to be able to reach both with one arm arm's length so it's not being in the same room with them it's just Okay, there's a dog here. I have to be able to reach the dog, and somebody else has to be able to reach the child because that's when accidents happen. It's only a split second and things can go wrong. You know, dogs and kids go on really, really well together, but sometimes we can be lulled into a false sense of security. And really, I think where it comes uh, important to think about it is your dog might have been fabulous with your child, but now your dog's got an earache and your child touches that ear. Well, what's the dog going to do? React. And if you're not there and you don't know that dog has a sore ear or a sore back, um, there's potential for disaster. And dogs often growl. Kids don't recognise a growl as, please, I just need my space here. Uh, Some children have actually interpreted when the dog shows its teeth as a smile because when we smile, it's a friendly gesture, but the dog showing its teeth, that isn't a friendly gesture. And one of the things I really like to teach in puppy classes is that you know growling is is okay it's a really good thing for dogs to do it's not something we should knock out of them because people in their old days used to go oh, the dog should never growl well the growl is the dog's early warning sign it's the one that's saying hey I'm a bit worried I'm a bit scared um you know it's really a dog's cry for help like you know please don't come any closer to me and please don't hurt me and if their dog can't growl that's when we're going to have issues so understanding that very simple body language can be really really helpful and I think with parents supervision 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 is the key Um, make sure the dog has something good to do it's really hard with the dog is jumping around as a puppy and nipping kids scream well that's just exciting so best time to supervise keep them separated at those times when everybody's calmer Kids, certainly over four years of age, I found some of the best trainers in the world for teaching puppies to sit and calm and stay of four-year-olds and above because they really like doing that and the puppies really respond to it and you get a really nice
2: relationship between them. That's a great idea. There are other signs that can also be misinterpreted when it comes to body language, though, aren't there, Kirsty, such as wagging tails?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think people often think that dog wagging its tail is a friendly dog. A wagging tail just means I'm willing to interact doesn't necessarily tell you it's going to be a friendly interaction or not so uh, a lot of people get bitten by a dog wagging its tail but it's the speed of the wag the height of the wag somebody's actually done a study looking at which way the wag goes Um, you can't really do that without very very good scientific equipment to measure whether the dog wags to the left or the right but I think the thing is that you know just because the dog's wagging its tail doesn't mean it's necessarily friendly I think it's always better uh, to let the dog approach you rather than you go up to the dog at That gives the dog that choice of well, I'm not sure about you. Maybe I'll keep my distance. I think actually COVID's been a fabulous thing for dogs because people have kept their distance a lot of the time, and they are probably learning that you don't want to necessarily be in close contact with others. So
2: there's a lot in that, Kirsty. And I just want to pick up on on talking about direction of tail wagging because I have I have a theory. Maybe it's an it's an upcoming uh, research opportunity to see if tails wag in different directions in the northern and southern hemispheres, like water going down a Plug hole.
3: <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. There's another study somebody should be looking at.
2: But let's stay on this topic for just a little bit longer, and it is an important one. And that's the topic of approaching dogs. Um, and again, I can speak to personal experience at this with my own dog Rumba. Um, she tends to get a lot of attention when we're out walking, and most people, uh, without thinking, seem to always approach dogs, or more often than not, approach dogs with their hand out, ready to to pat them on the head. And That's not the best way to approach a dog now, is it, Kirsty?
3: Well, most of us, uh, if you recall the days you were a child, how many of us liked when some adult said, oh, aren't you cute or aren't you a body wee lass or whatever? Uh, And we didn't like being patted on the head either. And it's, you know, dogs don't pat each other on the head. I don't know. I think we do it because we're taller than them and we can. But really, it's not a language that dogs understand. Uh, Most dogs really like being patted under the chin or at the side it's very threatening to loom over because that's what we would do uh, over the top of the dog's head and I don't think that we know enough about you know which dogs would like it and certainly some dogs I mean my little dog doesn't mind being patted on top of the head but I think if I was walking her down the street and every stranger wanted to pat her on the head she'd certainly go "Mm, enough enough I don't want any more of this so it's always better to let the dog approach you if you want to pat it I think it's always important to um, teach kids to ask the owners if it's okay to pat the dog and then it's it's got to ask the dog if it's okay and then if you're going to pat the dog underneath the chin or down the side is is a much safer place than on top of its head or along its back Uh, and that way again the dog knows what's going to be happening rather than suddenly have this hand reaching over the top of it Um, and kids aren't always the gentlest of patters on the head so again think about if you've got a headache or you've got sore ears that perhaps being patted on the head is not the appropriate way to go.
2: Absolutely. So let's talk about cats and a little bit of cat body language, because cats can be a little bit trickier to read than dogs. They certainly give um, signals just like dogs do. Um, They can twitch their tail, their ears can can move backwards a little bit, but it's a lot more subtle than dogs, especially when they're on the cusp of getting a little bit angry. Yeah. Uh,
3: Cats are very fast in how they communicate. They're much subtler. They you know, the twitching of the tail. You know, somebody once said to me, oh, does a waggy tail mean the dog is friendly? Well, it might. Does a waggy tail on a cat mean it's friendly? Never. So if you see a cat twitching its tail, that's not the cat to go and approach. If its ears go back, if its pupils get really wide, you certainly do not want to go near that cat. Uh, Again, I always let animals approach me if they want to. If they don't want to approach me, that's fine. Um, But um, cats, I think because they're so subtle, like blocking behaviours, they will sit in the door way and they don't want you or anybody else to go past and if you go past well don't be surprised if suddenly a paw lashes out and and scratches you but the cat's actually telling you in cat language "Mm -mm, you don't need to be coming past me at the moment so uh with cats it's not only the twitching tail it's the position of the ears the size of the pupils if you see that body tension Uh, and certainly if they're blocking access to something you wouldn't want to walk past that cat in a hurry
2: so we're all still at various different stages of managing and learning to live alongside coronavirus. And this might have had an impact for some people who've been expecting to, um, to bring their puppy or their kitten home, but it's been delayed. So Kirsty, if we're getting an older pet from a breeder and it's still a puppy or kitten, but just that little bit older and past the socialization phase we talked about earlier, or if we're adopting from an animal rescue shelter where we don't have any real knowledge of the dog or the cat's back background or history or what shaped its current behavior, does this actually have an impact on how we approach teaching our our new pet good manners if they're a little bit older? You know, the, the, the same
3: applies regardless of age. We always want to teach them what we want reward that behaviour. If they're doing something that we may not be that happy with, then we want to um, distract them from it and still keep rewarding. I don't believe in punishing even older animals. And older animals, I guess, one of the things that's important to recognise is we don't really know enough about what happened to them before. Um, we don't even really know that much about puppy behaviour either, in the sense that even if you go to a reputable breeder, because behaviour is much more complex than just its genetics and because um, it you know had a Labrador for a mum and a Labrador for a dad, it's going to be a friendly Labrador. We know with behaviour, it's genetics, learning and environment. Those three things interact, but now we also know that it's not only um, genetics like the Mendelian in genetics that we were taught at school but it's epigenetics so the way the bitch was treated during pregnancy uh, can have an effect on the behaviour of the puppies even the way the grandmother was thought to be treated during pregnancy can have an effect so it's not just what you see is what you get it it may go back generations so if the the mother was stressed during pregnancy we're going to have problems if you've got a male puppy between two female puppies in the womb that uh, there's other influences there that may also have an effect so it is much more complex than just I'll go to this really good breeder and um, I've seen the mother or father I've seen the other litters you still don't know what's happened well and truly and that becomes even truer when you've got an animal that's been perhaps in a rescue maybe three or four homes who knows what's happened to it because we really have no idea at all and sometimes it's okay to go okay well we don't know but does it really matter and what we need to work on is teaching them what kind of manners we'd like them Both of my dogs that I've had have been rescue dogs. I didn't know anything about them. One was a purebred and I did have the pedigrees, but the other one, you know, my husband brought home when I said, no, I don't need another nut roll in the house, but he brought her home Um, and she's a lovely, lovely, delightful little dog, but I have no idea. I had her DNA tested because I just couldn't work out what breed she was and she's um, half whippet and half boxer, Um, comes from a pedigree line in the UK. How do you believe that? But there you go. But it's interesting because her behavior is neither of what one of those breeds would be. And really, that's not the issue. It's I've taught her the manners that I want for her. Uh, Interestingly enough, Zari may remember that I do speak two languages and she was terrified when when she came out of the rescue and she would just run away if we spoke to her in English and so I started speaking to her in Estonian and she started to learn everything and it's not the language, I think it just sounds different so that if she would had bad experiences, somebody uh, speaking loudly in English was a frightening thing as far as she's concerned. So my husband's had to learn a few words of Estonian but she's bilingual now you know and sometimes I throw in German words as well and sometimes French words it's not the words it's it's the tone of voice that does it you know it's not the words and you know if you know how to be kind to them you know how to reward them Um, you can lure them and you reward them for doing the right thing you know that's and it's really the same principle regardless of age it's always about rewarding the nice behaviors that you want the appropriate behaviors that you want and if they seek direction give them direction I think that's that's probably the biggest thing that people forget, that they don't hop out of their womb knowing exactly what we want from them. We have to teach them the way that we want to live with them. And one of the things that I've been a strong advocate about, if you remember from way back when, I really hate that terminology responsible pet ownership because I think it should be socially responsible pet ownership. As society changes, we have different expectations. Uh, When I was growing up, nobody picked up the poop. You know, when the dog did it on the street. Now in Australia, it's against the law. You have to pick up the poop. Dogs are on lead. You know, you only go to off-leash parks because society's expectations of animals have changed. Whereas 100 years ago, we had totally different expectations. And, And look how well most of them have managed. You know, they've managed to fit in what with the kind of things that we want them to do you know they're just really adaptable fabulous animals and cats are the same Uh, and cats I think you know sometimes go well I don't want to do what you're asking so I'm just going to go sit in another room for a while but in fact we can train cats just as easily I think because and just heading back to Cat body language, I think some of the things that I really worry about because cat body language is so subtle, people often miss that they're worried and anxious because they go and hide. And so the dog that's worried about thunderstorms or fireworks or the dog that destroys your house or eats your shoes, boy, you're going to notice that and you're going to do something about it. But the cat that's just as terrified and anxious goes and sits under the bed. Hmm whole different ball game so you know I think we've got a lot of education to do in puppy classes and kitten classes so people actually um, are better at understanding the nature of animals.
2: But let's return to cats and training our, our kittens. So my cat, for example, he's trained to sit when he receives the rare occasion when he receives a food reward. But I know that some cats can actually be trained to, to do obstacle courses and all sorts of, of different things. And so how far can you take it when it comes to training um, cats? Or in fact, how far should we take it when it comes to training our cats?
3: Well, it, it really depends on on you. I mean, I'm as an owner, I, I don't teach my dog tricks because I don't think they need to know tricks. I I need her to be well behaved, well mannered, be nice. I mean, I've seen goldfish do obstacle courses. I mean, we can teach them to do all this stuff. But my question is always, are we doing it for us or are we doing it for them? And you can teach them to do anything that is within their ability to do so. You know, there's no doubt that if that's part of their natural behaviours, you can get them to do it. But I always ask, why do you want to do that? Um, I do think that we do do need to be meeting their physical needs and their um, emotional needs and their environmental needs. I absolutely believe that. But... Really, um, do they have to learn how to dance because you want to dance with them? You know, I mean, if your pet really enjoys it, I don't have any problem with that, but I watch so many animals doing stuff. And if you look at their body language and you look at their stress levels they're doing it because they can not because they want to and I went around the world a few years ago doing a whole pile of lectures that I entitled just because we can should we and I think that's something to think about it yeah I can teach my dog to do all sorts of things but should I be doing that you know is teaching a dog to walk on its back legs um, something that it wants to do well think about what pressures you're putting on, on its hips and on its back um you know if you you want to be a ballerina well you can do that because you want to do that and then you pay the price for what happens to your feet when you get older um if you want to be an athlete you pay the price for doing that you know but but it's your choice to do it when we have animals it's our choice whether we do that so I'm all for giving them lots of physical and mental exercise and meeting their needs but yeah, how far do you take it? I guess it depends on you and the pet. And I know there's some dogs who actually love doing the training. You know, like they they can't wait to do it. But I've also seen others that oh, you can almost see the sigh, like, here we go again. Do we have to? And and I watch dogs, um, and COVID's been really interesting, that even walking the dog, everybody's out there exercising and they take the dog for a walk because that's what you're supposed to do. I've seen dogs actually throw themselves on the ground and go, no, no, I'm not going any further. You know, you want to walk 10 kilometres, you go right ahead, but I've done my one and I'm just not going to go any further. And and I think we need to always take into consideration what their needs and wants might be, not just what we might want from them because they're fabulous parts of our lives and we need to respect you know their needs and emotions as well
2: yes you're you're absolutely right uh and i think the key takeaway for me there is providing enough mental and physical stimulation to meet their needs so for cats as we alluded to earlier it's giving them those vertical spaces so that they can enjoy jumping up and down surveying their their territory from on high and using toys like fishing rod toys which stimulate their their prey behaviors So we're coming towards the, sadly, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Kirsty. So what would be your biggest piece of advice when it comes to understanding and teaching our pets good manners?
3: Well, there's three things that I think are really, really important for animals. I think um, they like routines. That's really, really important. So most animals, if you give them a routine, doesn't mean you do something at six and something at seven or something at eight, but having, having a routine for them is really, really important. Um... I think giving them rewards is really important. Rewarding the behavior you want uh, rather than just ignoring them is really, really important. And one of the things that has really become obvious to me in the last few months with COVID is animals need rest. And most dogs and cats, need at least 16 hours of rest and sleep a day and what's happening if we're home with them all the time we're taking them for walks we interact with them we're doing stuff and there's nothing like lack of sleep to make you irritable and you know if you think about the three hours routine rewards and rest you're probably going to have the best way that you can uh, live with your animal and I think just enjoy them for what they are they all have different personalities they all have different quirks and and I guess if I want to finish with one thing is recognize that um, Animals have mental health issues. We know at least 20% of them do. So if you're
2: struggling with your pet, time to see your vet. Yes, always, always go and see your vet if you have any concerns. But but I like that a lot, Kirsty, the three R's. And in fact, I think it just became the four R's. Routine, reward, rest, and recognize that pets have mental health issues. In fact, I think I might take those four R's into my own life. I think it could work just as well for us as well as for our pets. Absolutely. Well, Kirsty, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you as always.
3: It's been lots of fun to catch up again and we should do it again sometime.
2: Well, that's all for this episode of Vet Voice. Don't forget that nobody knows your pet like you do. So if you're in any way worried or concerned about your pet's health, please be sure to contact your own local veterinary practice. And to make sure that you receive the next episode of the Pet Pod, please do like, share and subscribe. Thanks so much for listening.